Learn the most advanced recruiting techniques. Land the most desirable talent. Launch your company towards massive success. This is the Higher Power Radio Show with Rick Gerard. You're at the point in your business where you need to hire your first person to head up a department, say maybe sales, marketing, or engineering. And you're excited and terrified both at the same time. And you're thinking, I have to get this right. And of course, you are. You do have to get this right. So how do you evaluate a person with an area of expertise that you are not familiar with? The answer, my friends, is being prepared, digging deep, and really listening. Step outside of your first impression and be aware of your tendency for confirmation bias. Shift your focus on gathering concrete evidence and the outcome will be the correct decision every time. I'm Rick Gerard and welcome to the Higher Power Radio Show. We help entrepreneurs and business leaders win the strongest hires. We do so by sharing insights from top performing rebel entrepreneurs, game changers, and industry leaders like our guest today, Mr. Liam Rose. He is the founder of Catalina 7 Ventures, a Southern California consumer software startup. Before joining C7V, Liam led the sales team for an Orange County-based entertainment startup as a result of his own challenges trying to juggle health, academic obligations, and personal relationships while attending the University of Richmond. Liam created a new approach to life scheduling built to enable better balance. During this time at the Robbins School of Business, he was selected as a 2019 innovator under 25, which is a great accomplishment. So Liam is a current founder who is knee-deep in building a product-based obsessed team, which is what makes Liam the perfect expert for today's topic. Liam, welcome to the Higher Power Radio Show today. Thank you for having me. Excited to speak with you. We're going to talk a little bit about how to make your first departmental hire. This is a challenge you're going through right now, so we're going to make it a fun discussion in and around how to do it. I'm going to give share some of my ideas and how you're approaching it. Let's dig in. Now, I wanted to start out actually by really discussing the fact that every hire is a critical hire at your stage at probably the first 50 to 100 people. Now, we've all been taught this mentality of hire slow, fire fast. I want to test that a little bit because quite frankly, I say hire slow and fire slower. And I got that actually from an essay that was written called Cold Creation by a guy named Steve Newcomb. He founded a company called PowerSet, which became Bing, Microsoft Bing. So he's had a successful exit. One of the principles behind it is you don't have to fire if you hire right. So if you're taking the time to do that, then you're putting yourself in a really strong position. So let's talk about what other challenges we have today, especially like if as this transfers into you've got your first hire that you have to make, what is the challenge that you're finding in getting that right person on board? Well, I think that a lot of founders, especially first-time founders, come into this at a disadvantage because they believe in this mythology of two or three people who meet each other all at the right time, they have the perfect balance of skills, then all of a sudden, boom, they have their startup team, they're off to the races. But of course, there's so much challenge to that. And of course, as a founder, you're not going to have expertise in all of these different areas together. You might have a team, a core nucleus of like technical founders who start building the product. And I've seen that happen a lot. But then you run into that issue of, okay, now we need to do sales. How do you hire that first salesperson? And people naturally want to lean into their areas of comfort. If you know a lot about engineering, you want to spend all of your time on that because it's fruitful and productive and you feel comfortable doing it. But of course, 
as soon as you're hiring outside of your direct skill set, then to some extent you're starting at a different form of disadvantage. You don't know the appropriate metrics. You don't know what that really good candidate looks like on paper or how they're necessarily going to interact. Well, when you say on paper too, that's another thing like, wow, this person doesn't really look good on paper. I know a lot of really amazing people look terrible on paper. You're judging people based off of a pedigree or where they're working currently or whatever buzzwords they put on their resume, basically. Right. And in theory, someone who's in marketing should never look bad on paper because looking good on paper is a part (laughs) of the job description. But a lot of times, if you're looking for someone who's really skilled in a particular area, they're not going to focus a lot of time on selling themselves, you know, whether they should or not. So it's up to you to actually look past that as the hiring manager. Well, they're not going to take a lot of time to build a resume. Yeah. Because I find that most high performers, they have a LinkedIn profile which is minimalistic at best. And they're like, well, look at if you want to talk to me, I'm happy to do that. I'm busy. I'm working. I have a reason why I could probably talk to you. But the fact of the matter is I'm not going to spend a day putting together a resume for you because it's just a waste of my time. And a lot of the best candidates would really prefer to let their work speak for themselves, especially say a developer designer. They can share a portfolio. And of course, that's going to tell you so much more about their ability to do the job than their ability to have a neatly formatted resume from Microsoft Word. (laughs) So very true. And we both agree, like, the reason why this is important to a company is because if you make the wrong hire, it could put your company out of business. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, of course, the very oft-repeated idea that A players attract A players and B players attract B players and so on. But beyond that, there's more of a cultural element that often gets left behind is, okay, this person came to the job, but are they actually good for this organization? Are they going to drive it forward in the direction that we've determined? Well, an A player is not necessarily just based on skills. It's got to be a 50-50 match, right? Mm -hmm. Skills and culture. The truth is you can take a B player in one company who's just a complete mismatch for the culture, and they can excel to an A. But you mentioned A players do want to be around A players. B players, there's the theory that B players sometimes hire like C players to make them look better so mm-hmm. that they're more, they're threatened by the A players. And I think this definitely goes back to the, you know, hire slow, fire slower or even slower. A lot of startups say, okay, well, here's the person that we can get, even if they probably could get a little bit more with more time and or a more deliberate process. Really key thing to think about too is if you were to actually do the fire fast thing, which is that's common knowledge, right? So mm-hmm. if somebody's not working out, they're not hitting their benchmarks, let's just get rid of them. What is the aftermath of that? Oftentimes it's half finished projects or even worse, half documented projects. Someone who's working, I mean, particularly engineers, they could put forth meaningful contributions, even if they're not really the optimal person. But if you think, oh, okay, there's someone better out there, we're going to fire this person immediately and start looking for someone else, then of course, you've probably not only missed out on that person's opportunity, but you're probably not even reaping the benefits of the work they've performed. Well, not only that, the message that you're sending to the rest of the team and everybody else within the organization is it reduces the trust in you, your ability to actually attract the right people and your decisions that you made, and it increases anxiety. So it kills innovation. And there's always going to be better qualified and less qualified candidates out there. Might I hold myself to that same standard if there could be a better CEO out there? Hey, you know what? If you're doing a great job, you can fire yourself quickly, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You're listening to the Higher Power Radio Show. I'm your host, Rick Gerard. And for our podcast listeners, we're going to take a quick educational moment from our sponsors. Hey, check out stridesearch.com. There you'll find additional content and resources to help you land the strongest hires. You'll also find a link to Healing Career Wounds, which is available now on Amazon. This one right here.
We're talking to Liam Rose. He's the founder of Catalina 7 Ventures. And we're discussing making your first hire. And we just talked a little bit about the importance of it. Now we're going to dig into really the nitty gritty of how you identify somebody and then how you understand whether or not they're the right person for your company. I'm going to take a lead on this a little bit. I want to start out by saying everybody talks about having a hiring process. It's super important that you have a hiring process, but you also need to engage in interview training. And I don't think very much of that goes on. You can have a great process, but you have poor execution in the interview, you're not going to get the best result. I think action without process is just motion. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) That works too. The interview training and the experience that you're providing for the person. We don't really think too much about that. And we treat it more like, hey, let's just bring a person in. We'll have a conversation. We see if we fit. You have a great conversation. And that person might end up being a beer drinking buddy later on Mm -hmm. down the road. But it doesn't really bring forth any evidence to support whether or not that person is the strongest person for your company. Absolutely. It's such a missed opportunity when there's that ad hoc approach because, number one, you lose the chance to signal to that candidate that you can actually be someone who is an effective manager or team member. Really, you know enough about what they're going to do, that you can set realistic expectations, you can support them in what they're trying to do, and really show that you have enough credibility in your job to be able to select this person to execute in their own department. And beyond that, it's a little bit of a signal into how you're going to be managing that person if you do, in fact, hire them. Show them your framework, show them your methodology. Yeah. Tell me your three steps here. So you have signaling, which is what you're talking about now. Right. And then beyond that, actually conducting the interview process itself. You know, this is where we go into having that unified process for a number of reasons, one of them being actual comparison. If we're going to have multiple candidates, putting them through different versions of the process or different cadence of the process that makes it harder for us to actually evaluate that person. See, I don't like compare and contrast. I think it's dangerous. I think you should treat each interview like that's your only candidate Mm -hmm. because you really don't need to see 17 different people that make one hire. You just really need to see one really good person who's positioned well for your company, who's going to hit the cover off the ball for you. And that goes back to something that happens even before the interview takes place, which is having your metrics of evaluation or standards, however you want to put it. And a lot of times here, this is where we have to call on that outside help. We need someone who has more experience in that arena than we do to actually say, hey, here are the red flags that you're going to want to miss out on. Here are the you know, signals that if you hear from this candidate, that means you want to bring them on board as soon as possible. Yeah, it's always good to have an outside influence for sure. So we've got three pieces here. We have signaling, we have demonstration of understanding, and then what you call calling a hotline, right? Yeah. Those are, those are <laughs> phone a friend. Absolutely. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the demonstration of understanding because I think this is where we fail. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we interview, we treat it like a sales process. So we go in and we start telling them all the benefits and features of our company and how we have a foosball <laughs> table. And hey, it's free lunch on Wednesdays. And we do a lot of really cool things. And it's a lot of verbal diarrhea at them hoping that they're going to bite onto something. So it's mm-hmm. like throwing the bait out there. I don't see that that works. Tell me if you see differently that that might. No, no, I I was 100% guilty of that in the early days. And it's something I still can improve upon. But I came from a very traditional business background. And so I thought, okay, I framed the opportunity how I might frame this for, you know, someone with a finance or management background, someone who's close to my experience. And of course, speaking to an engineer, speaking to a designer that really doesn't do anything for them. And if anything, that signals, okay, this person knows they're really well. They know what they want from me but they're not going to actually understand the process. They're not going to be able to support that. They're not going to understand if I need other resources brought in or an adjustment to the roadmap. 
And so very early on, or rather the first hire for us was the first software engineer. And I really didn't have any computer science background. I wasn't a coder going into this. And at first I really struggled with this. And one of the most enlightening experiences I had was speaking to a really senior engineering manager at a well-known software company. And what he told me is that engineers aren't really attracted to the benefits and the opportunities, say, like a finance person might be. They want problems. They want really difficult, hard-to-solve problems because that's where they're going to be most engaged. That's where they can really show their abilities and actually get the most fulfillment from the job experience. So that was one form of speaking their language. And then, of course, speaking to designers, we really had to tone down the more clinical, objective, boring stuff, if you will, and actually make it seem like there was a lot of room for creative expression within the role. But I think also if you have conversation with people prior to you selling them or telling them about the role, about what it is they want, why are they talking to you, what their pain is, what they desire out of their next role, and then they get an idea of the impact that they've actually made in their current organization. It gives you a much more richer content to position really what's going to hit this person on an individual basis as opposed to, because you're right, a lot of engineers that I know, they love problem solving, Mm -hmm. but some problems aren't going to be as interesting for them as others are. So we can generally think that, okay, well, let's find out where the problem is. What is the problem solving that you really like to do? I really like to write algorithms. I really like to get into code and tweak it, and make sure that it, I like to break things. I love the QA part of the code. There's so many little facets to it that we don't think about us non-technical folk. But at the same time, those are so important to whether or not somebody's going to be successful in that role. Right. And it's hard to imagine someone asking some version of this question too many times, but being able to give them room to express their preferences. A lot of candidates aren't necessarily used to that. It's not the most common thing to say, hey, what would make you succeed? What just works best for you? What's your preferred communication style? What's your best hours for communication? And a lot of times, even in cases where it does work out where they're the right person, it's a hire and forget situation. They set all this up front, someone made a note of it, people adjusted a little bit later on. But if they don't really continually revisit that saying, you know, are we doing this right? You said this kind of communication works best. Is that still working out? Revisiting that maybe once a quarter at a minimum provides so much opportunity to say, hey, it wasn't just an act up front. We do want to understand you. We want to support you in any way that we possibly can. Well, I think in the beginning, you have to do that almost daily. You really have to make sure that the communication flow, that's what's going to be a successful onboarding. Because otherwise, there's data out there that people are willing to bounce in the first 90 days pretty easily, pretty quickly too. And a lot of people just aren't used to saying what they want very directly. You think, okay, I'm new here. I just want to be deferential to the manager or whomever. But if they're not going to be happy, then they're not going to put out their best work. Yeah, very true. That's a form of professional empathy that you're absolutely kind of there. Got it. Let's talk about calling the hotline because <laughs> I, I think using advisors or using other people who are subject matter experts is so critical. What's been your experience? Well, it, it's definitely especially true in a startup, especially you know those with founders who have less domain experience, but really any company, any company where people do different things within the organization. The drum that I'm always beating here is that the number one contribution advisors can make isn't necessarily a value add, though it can be, but truly it's more de-risking. It's someone who has the experience, someone who can easily sit down in an interview, maybe not even say anything, listen to what the candidate is saying. They can identify the red flags much more easily. They know, okay, this is something, a very rare trait that you actually really want that you're not going to hear from other candidates, so move quickly on this one. We have lots of enthusiasm, we have a vision, but we don't have that experience. We haven't done dozens of 
versions of that interview throughout our careers. And so being able to call the most technical advisor that we have to be able to assist with that recruitment, being able to call someone who has the most financial experience or HR administrative experience, they can tell you based on experience, this is not going to go anywhere. And this is actually a very rare quality. But it seems to me like really their value comes in on the skills piece more so than the cultural alignment, because that's really your job is to protect and build the culture. But the skills piece, if I'm looking for a technical person, I'm going to reach out to one of my friends who I know is really technical. And I'm going to say, hey, look, can you evaluate this person from a technical perspective and let me know whether or not they really have done what they say they have done. Right. The culture piece really is the least changing, the most standard across different departments. But the skills, of course, will be the most differentiated and places where we just might not know what's truly valuable. Well, let's bounce back to process. There's a couple of key elements that I mentioned earlier. Having a process, first and foremost, is the most important. Having training and then creating a good experience for the other person. What has worked for us from a process perspective is a good process has to have a flow and it has to have timing set to it. So you start on time, you always end on time. So if I say, hey, Liam, I'm going to have you come in. It's going to be 45 minutes. Start on time, end on time. And it's always a really good idea to prep people and let them know. A players want to know how much time I'm going to invest into this. And then while I'm there, what do I need to expect? So if you want to hire people that are not A players, don't do any of this. (laughs) There's no reason to. I always like to start with a discovery call, which is about 45 minutes. The purpose of that is to find out whether or not you are positioned well for my organization. If you're a person who wants a large company and I'm a startup, there's no reason for us to continue talking. I could probably leave you off better by saying, hey, look at my friend Jim works over at XYZ Company. Let me make an introduction if you're feeling committed to doing so. But Again, investing either person's time in an interview doesn't make sense without really making sure that somebody's positioned properly for the organization. Mm -hmm. And then interview, there's two types of interviews. You have your cultural interview. You can do 60 minutes, 45 to 60 minutes, whatever you feel you need to do for your company. And then you do a skills-based interview, which we like to do working sessions. Working sessions are really easy because I can have you come in for half day, pay you for that half day and say, hey, look, we're going to work through a problem that we're having in our business right now that you're an expert in and we can figure out how we can meld those two together. It gives you tons of data on the person's ability to work together, like how well they work as a team, how they problem solve, how they communicate. Like that all is like such great data before you make a decision. You might have somebody that looks great on paper and then you get them in there and we can't talk. Right. And the first time we met, you introduced that idea. And I thought that, okay, in theory, something like that would work great. But is there some way to actually do it? But then, of course, the half day session you described really would have solved a lot of our problems had we been able to try that out with some of the early candidates. I'm not speaking for you, but I'm speaking for a lot of the co-founders that I know, like that I've talked to. Most of them told me, hey, in the very beginning, when I hired people, I just got lucky. The ones that stuck, it was just luck. It was dumb luck more so than anything else. And so, God, if we could shift that just by that one little thing um, to where, hey, look at, I'm going to make sure that like I get the right person every time and we're going to do this session to be able to do that, then it's such a greater chance of success. Yeah. I mean, the thing I did right there was choosing the right gatekeepers who I thought would know the right people. But beyond that, we didn't have the process to really filter through them, to really test people as well as we might have. Yeah. How much interview training have you ever had? 
None directly. <laughs> there were maybe two classes in business school that indirectly touched on this, but not even to the extent yeah. of a full mock interview. I would go outside of class to professors and learn about this and try to get what I could about it. But yeah, and you could read books about it. But what's really interesting is that I've talked to 20-year seasoned CIOs. I asked my friend, in your career, how much interview training have you ever had? And he said, I had an hour once and it was what not to do. Right. That's pretty much it. Don't say this. Don't say that. Don't get us into trouble and you're good. It's pretty much the lawyer's edition of, you know, how to conduct an interview. Good to know, but a lot more than that. <laughs> pretty much. The last piece is a create experience for people that they're glad that they came and invested the time with you. And I'm sure I know you spend time with people and you spend a lot of time like making sure that that person is having a good experience, which is great, but not enough of us do that. Leave hmm. everybody in that process feeling like, hey, you know what? I'm not a fit for Liam, but... It was great to meet them. And for a company like ours, an early stage startup, we really need those candidates who are in love with our company specifically. If they just want a software job, they're probably more like an improver or a maintainer, and they probably will be happier and better off at a larger company. If they're going to go through the ups and downs with us, they really have to have that personal connection to us. That is so very true. She, we're getting pretty close on time. What would be two or three key takeaways you can give the audience that they can plug into their business today? Sure. Well, I would say first and foremost, speak their language, not yours. We naturally want to dive back into the areas where we're most comfortable, but that's not going to help us reach across skill gaps and experience gaps. And beyond that, advisors really are the de-risking element. They have the experience that you don't. And if you don't have an advisor with that experience, well, then go find them first, then start making big hires. Yeah. You know what? I actually learned a really valuable lesson from my friend, Lori Torres. And she said when she started up her company, Partial Pending, she said, I asked everybody for help. I would just call people and go, hey, I need help. Ask for help as much as you can. And people will do it. And you know what? As I'm starting up my startup now too, same thing. If you don't ask, you don't get. Liam, thanks so much for your time investment today, man. And I want to welcome you to the Higher Power Radio community. Now, what would be the best way in which members of the audience can find you? You have an app in beta. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So basically social network for time. So not just the what and when, but really who you are. If you're interested in checking it out or speaking with us or learning more about the team, you can check out our website at www.catalina, like the island, seven, the digit ventures.com or horus.live, H-O-R-U-S, just like the Egyptian God. And that's the name of our first app. Sweet. Well, I want to thank our listening audience for tuning in to this week's episode of Higher Power. Quick thanks to our team, Brian Colburn, Andrea Ballin, and Ayla Gerard. If you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe, review, and share. After all, this show's for you and we're listening as much as we possibly can because we want to continue to make the content much, much richer and better for you. You can join the Higher Power Radio community at higher, H-I-R-E, power, P-O-W-E-R, radio, R-A-D-I-O dot com, or you can drop me an email at rickatstridesearch.com. Tune in next Tuesday. Our guest is going to be Aron Stewart. He is the co-founder and CEO of job.com. I'm your host, Rick Gerard, and you have been listening to the Higher Power Radio Show. Aloha. Thank you for listening to Higher Power Radio. Catch our LinkedIn Live show every Tuesday at noon or download the podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you joining us on Higher Power Radio with your guide to recruitment success. Rick Turner.